It is 2.01 here on WQAQ 98.1. I'm your host, Peter Howarth, and it is time for Throwback Saturday, where we're going to take what's happening throughout the NFL, NBA, and MLB and interpret it through the lens of statistics. So as we start every show, we are going to start with a recap of last week. Um, And because I do record this on Thursdays, if you are listening on a Friday via podcast, again, some of this is sort of irrelevant, but it's just the way we do it. Uh, so last week's Thursday night football game, I predicted the Bears would take care of business at home, probably by a touchdown, just because the Thursday night games are just incredibly wonky. And um, I usually I, I the the rationale is that they're not going to be close games, but as we have seen this season, that necessarily hasn't hold held up. So Commanders at Bears in Soldier Field. The Commanders were 1-4 and four heading into the game. Bears 2-3. and three. Uh, At home, I thought the Bears, again, would take care of business, but it was 12-7 Commanders, the second consecutive week of an ugly football game on Prime Video. I'm sure they're thrilled about that. Um, and then um, last week, I, I went into Amazon sort of taking a bet on this and how it's paid off. Their viewership numbers are great. They have reported that this is a big marquee event for them as through their week two Thursday night football game, their first Thursday night game of the season between the Chargers and the Chiefs, it did dividends for them similar or even exceeding other notable Amazon events such as Prime Day, Cyber Monday. So as a gamble for them at work, the viewership numbers are still very high and I think this will be a benchmark going forward if other companies want to venture into really going into streaming sports that heavily, such as Apple TV Plus is, has done with Friday Night Baseball this year and will go into the MLS next year, and certainly something to monitor with the NBA TV rights coming up, and there will be a lot of players in the game, whether ESPN wants to have a larger stake through ESPN Plus or if Turner and TNT wants to have also a larger stake because they haven't really delved into the streaming TV the same way the others uh, with Amazon, Apple, and Disney through ESPN have. So that'll be something to monitor. Um, And to get back to how ugly that game was and the week before Colts-Broncos, that 12-9 game in Mile High was very ugly as well. Just to put some things into context, if you're complaining about oh, well, you know, what a waste of my my Prime subscription. Like, these games are a waste of my time, waste of my money. Just for some context, Amazon paid $13 billion for 11 years of their Thursday night football contract. That's about $1.18 billion per year. And if there are 15 Thursday night games per year, they paid about $78 million per game. That's from Roger Sherman on Twitter. So if you're complaining about however much your Prime subscription is, I don't know, I think they're like anywhere from like 70 to like $100, I'm not too sure. Um, they had, you know, like a million times the amount of stake in that. Um, I just thought that was a fun stat. And it looks like things should be getting better in terms of the upcoming Thursday night football schedule. Tonight it is Saints Cardinals. At the end of the show, I will give my forecast and prediction on that. And then uh, for the ensuing weeks, we get some better matchups. It's still not perfect because I think in terms of the primetime games, Thursday night football is sort of the little brother to everyone else. But this upcoming week on October 27th, week 8, 
Ravens, Buccaneers, that should be better. Week 9, Eagles at Texans. Say whatever you want about the Texans, but getting the undefeated marquee Eagles in primetime is a win for them. And again, there's some stinkers in there. Falcons, Panthers, that'll be abysmal. Titans, Packers, it could be okay, but uh, not as good as some others. But then you get Bills, Patriots, a divisional game. The Super Bowl favorite, I would say, Bills against the resurgent Patriots. And, And it goes on and on. Some stinkers, some good ones. I think that's just sort of the lay of the land. Look at Monday Night Football, very similar. This past week, it was Chargers, Broncos. It was a close game, went down to the wire. But at the same time, I don't think I would call it a good game per se. Moving forward, uh, this is something I like to do every week, looking at the uh, market-derived power ranking. So this is taking betting lines and neutralizing it across how much a team would be favored against a league-average opponent on a neutral field. So essentially, looking at the betting lines and and neutralizing them to see what sports books thinks think are the best teams and comparing that to something like epa per play uh, epa expected points added if you put offensive epa versus defensive epa on a chart and then cut things diagonally again this is probably something that's better visually but you know just roll with it i'll break it down for you you can see sort of who is the who is the best at offensive and defensive bring it together into a complete package and in you know if you have the best package in terms of offensive and defensive epa then you are going to bring the most expected points added so you're going to be the best team you're going to bring the most points on the board anyways looking at the team tiers based off what the sports book thinks it is the bills in solely first place followed by the second tier of the chiefs buccaneers and eagles just looking at the top there i do think the bills are clear favorites i mean what they did against the chiefs in arrowhead shouldn't be discounted whatever you think of the chiefs i think the chiefs are right there with them they have some adjustments to make but i think the bills just their offensive personnel they have more weapons than patrick mahomes and then i think their defense is more stout um but very interesting i think that they have the buccaneers and the second team of in the second tier of contenders i think that's overrated because as much as tom brady still has chris godwin and mike evans and leonard Fournette in that offense the offensive line is weaker and i don't know how much to read into brady not being with the team for a lot of the preseason just last week he missed a lot of key practices during the week because he got a veteran rest day on a wednesday and then went to Robert Kraft's wedding, I believe, on the Friday, and then took a private jet to meet the team for their game. I think there's some internal chemistry issues there. I I mean, there's only so much we can see from the outside, but there's just something off with Tampa. I think they can click it into high gear, and they can turn it around because that is just the level of players and personnel they have. We just have to see it, and for that reason, I wouldn't put them in that tier with the undefeated eagles with patrick mahomes and the chiefs and with josh allen and the bills but if you look at that versus what epa has to say so if you look at straight up performances not something that the sports books are interpreting it does have the bills in their own tier followed by a tier of the eagles and the chiefs so i mean they're pretty aligned there but what i find interesting 
So the sports books have the Buccaneers in that second tier, tier of contenders. If you break it down through EPA, they are just on the cusp of the third and the fourth tiers. That shows you the underwhelming nature of the Buccaneers, but just due to the star power they have, sportsbooks have to respect it because with having Tom Brady and Mike Evans and, you know, go down the line, the betters are going to be there and people are going to back them because they think they can win any game. And I think they can win any game, but they just haven't necessarily proved that this year. Some other interesting ones, uh, you know, comparing the, the EPA versus what the sportsbook think. They have the EPA, they have the Bengals, Niners, Patriots, and Jaguars in the third tier of contenders. The Bengals are in the third tier of contenders for the sportsbooks, but the sportsbooks have the Niners and the Patriots in the fourth tier of contenders and the Jaguars in the fifth. I think the Jaguars just get no respect. Um, I think what that offense has been able to do, Doug Peterson really helping guide Trevor Lawrence to a bounce back second year after a, an underwhelming rookie performance last year gets Travis Etienne back Christian Kirk has been a revelation even with Zay Jones in and out of the lineup Evan Ingram has been solid for them James Robinson had a great start to the season a lot of that has been game script they got out two big leads in the first couple of games of their season so James Robinson was able to dominate but while they've been behind Etienne is a clear passing back so he's been better in recent weeks I think that's a great one-two punch I think the AFC South is incredibly weak. Whatever you think of the Texans, the Colts are underwhelming, and I think the Titans are underwhelming. So there's an opening there for the Jaguars to try to take the division, and I, I think they performed it, and I think those numbers back that up. Uh, and then one other thing I want to talk about if we're looking at sort of advanced stats for the NFL at the moment are the Rams. The Rams, Super Bowl winners last year, there was some talk on the uh, pregame of their season opener for their ring ceremony that because there hasn't been a team that has repeated as Super Bowl champions since the, I believe it was the 2002-2003, maybe 2003-2004. The years are confusing for the NFL because technically the season is like, for instance, this season is the 22-23 season, but the Super Bowl winners will often be called like the 2023 Super Bowl champions. So I, I get confused. It's either, I believe it's the 2002-2003 Patriots or the 2003-2004 Patriots. I don't know how you interpret it. But, uh, you know, every year when you do that season opener game, it's, well, do you, can this team repeat as champions? Uh, I believe the Rams, they, uh, Rodney Harrison and the rest of the crew on NBC did not think they, will, they would repeat. I didn't think they w would either. I just, I think that team had a really good run. They had a lot of health go right at the right moments they had some unbelievable comebacks and all sort of worked out i think they played a weaker opponent in the super bowl uh in cincinnati than it could have been versus kansas city or buffalo i think kansas city or buffalo would have beaten the rams the rams were also in their home stadium something that doesn't happen often granted it happened the direct year before with the buccaneers um but i just think it was a perfect storm for the rams um, with Matthew Stafford coming in. And the data sort of backs that up. So if you take EPA per play versus your season-long pass block grade from pro football focus, uh, this is a great way of showing the Rams pass blocking versus efficiency under Sean McVay. So this is year, year by year through week six, obviously, because that's only how far we are through this current NFL season. The best run or 
Rather, the best pass blocking performances under Sean McVay have been in 2018, when the Rams made the Super Bowl and lost in Super Bowl 53 against the Patriots, and last year, 2021, when the Rams made the Super Bowl and won against the Bengals. So it shows that when the Rams have great pass blocking, they are as good as any team in the NFL. I mean, and in those two seasons, they both made the Super Bowl. And in one, they lost by 10, and the other, they, they won. And this current season, as we've uh, discussed, the Rams have certainly underperformed uh, coming off of a Super Bowl. I don't necessarily think it's a Super Bowl hangover. I think they're just coming more to the mean. They are regressing to the mean, and I think they are more of this above-average team, not necessarily the uh, runaway favorites. Again, they were not runaway favorites last year. It's just um, that's the team they morphed into as the season went on. They were able to stay healthy. Uh, Sean McVay is a world-class coach. They were able to scheme very well, and, and they just had a very good run to the postseason. But this season, their pass blocking is the worst they've ever had under Sean McVay. And there's a lot of reason to that. Their offensive line, they've had a lot of injuries. They've had nine players start along the line in five games. Um, McVay himself has said that they've got to play better around Matthew Stafford, that it's not on Stafford. And it, it's Stafford, for his um, for him alone, he's had shoulder injuries that was documented through the preseason. Um, and it was continually emphasized that it would not hold him back and his numbers have been okay but a lot of this again can be attributed to the offensive line per pro football focus defenses have generated 75 pressures on him in five games that's the fourth most of any quarterback this season he has also been sacked the most in the league more than he uh, he has been sacked 21 times and according to Pro Football Focus, 95.6% of his pressures were due to offensive line moves. And that's the most of any quarterback who has started all five games this season. So it's not a case of him um, leaving the pocket and then, uh, you know, once that happens, it's sort of out of the hands of the offensive line. Because it, it does say that Stafford warrants responsibility for the remaining 4.4%. And it's tough, right? Because if your pass blocking is not great, well, maybe that is an indication that you need to run the ball more. They're, they running backs, or rather their team as a whole, because this documents Cooper Cup jet sweeps. They've only managed 62.4 rushing yards per game. That's the worst in the league. So they cannot run the ball well, so they've sort of had to abandon that. Cam Akers has, it's really, his status is up in the air. Sean McVay says that, he is being away from the team. They're evaluating, looking for a trade for him, maybe in a better situation. It's really unclear what is going on. Akers, very talented running back. He was able to sort of miraculously come back in the postseason last year after an injury that they thought he'd be out for this season. I believe it was Achilles. Um, and he was a high draft pick of the Rams and someone Sean McVay believed in. But all of a sudden, he's just... Again, hard to say what happened. Maybe it's a, a, a discipline issue, not following team rules or team conduct. Uh, I, I don't know. So Daryl Henderson has had to step up for them. They lost Sony Michelle. Uh, Henderson's been okay. But again, if they can't run the ball and their pass blocking is this bad, then it's a, it's a recipe for disaster, especially with a, a, the defense is okay. They're good at what they do. Aaron Donald is great. Jalen Ramsey is great. They are reliant on star power, and they can't always hold up. 
So if the offense is struggling and that defense has to be out for, you know, more drives or longer drives than they're used to, then they have the they are susceptible to to break. And I think that has plagued the Rams all year and it'll continue to plague them until health shores up on the line. They dramatically change things schematically. Maybe they try to get a trade for Christian McCaffrey and try to get him involved in order to neutralize some of that. But I don't think the Rams are going to be a a real contender this year like the way they were last year. Again, I could be proved wrong because Sean McVay could just scheme the crap out of everything, but I'm not seeing anything that would would prove uh, that to be the case. Uh, actually, one uh, one thing I, I wanted to uh, touch on, which I find very interesting. So I just referenced some stats from Pro Football Focus. And if you've heard of them, they are like an advanced stats company for the NFL. Well, not for the NFL. They cover the NFL and they uh, break down performances um, just based off what they're seeing. Uh, you may know them from if you watch Sunday Night Football and you see the player introductions, they'll be usually a little bar below them and they'll see like pff rank um i know like i'm watching the buccaneers a couple weeks a couple weeks ago and it said like mike evans uh third out of like 96 i don't know eligible receivers so it's based off his performances he is the third best receiver in their eyes in the nfl Uh, their stats are a little confusing but this is something that popped up on my twitter and i just want to talk about briefly Quinton Williams had a monster game last week. He had sacks. He, I believe he had a kick block. He was all over the place. He got a 64.5 grade from PFF. That was worse than uh, Solomon Thomas, Brandon Eccles, and Lamarcus Joyner for the Jets. And it was the second worst performance that he had for the year. He And just for some... Um, context on those guys Eccles gave up a touchdown in 12 snaps and was deemed better than Williams and Williams he was the second player in the NFL since 2000 to register three tackles two quarterback hits a sack a tackle for a loss a forced fumble and a blocked field goal in a half he did that in a half a game and he was deemed via pro football focus as worse than a guy who gave up a touchdown while playing 12 snaps so i just wanted to say this because i'm not really sure how pro football focus analyzes plays in order to interpret that grade maybe they just have some advanced algorithms that are over any of our heads but i have a hard time believing that whatever numbers they use that we are supposed to uh in a way blindly follow through nbc deem that someone with who had a half that only one other player has done since 2000 that Quinn Williams the other player was Carlos Dunlap great player in his own right was worse than a guy who gave up a touchdown in 12 snaps and there is some evidence to to back up my claim or that was Michael Lombardi who tweeted that out Michael Lombardi former uh Patriots uh executive uh no no Patriots bias there for me. He writes a lot of books. He has his own podcast. Um, he's a pretty respected voice in the league. Um, but another respected voice who has uh, had his frustrations with um, film study and, and what PFF is interpreting is Bill Belichick. 
because a lot of what PFF does is it analyzes a player and what they're supposed to do on a given play and how well do they do it. And this is what the, what Belichick said. Uh, this was uh, to WEI radio station uh, in Boston in 2018. He said, you see a play on film and a receiver goes uncovered down the field. So you know it's probably one of two guys' mistake, so you don't know which guy it is. A lot of times the announcer will say, this guy should have taken him or that guy should have taken him. And I'm looking at the play saying it could have been either guy, depending on what the call was. In terms of analytics, you get a lot of this guy should have him, that guy should have him. I know from our team, there are times when we don't know exactly what went wrong until we sort out the play. So it's impossible someone else could have known. Sometimes what it looks like is not what it is. So if what PFF does is if they interpret film and a player's responsibility... <clears throat> and how they're supposed to execute a play and how well they do it according to those expectations. How can they do that if, I mean, coaches have dialogues with players and they're trying to figure out exactly what went wrong and if they're studying opposing film tape and they're trying to see, all right, if the guy was supposed to cover this zone or was was he supposed to cover like a, a, a two-deep safety look or was he supposed to play under with cornerback help over the top, just for instance, it's impossible to know without knowing the play call and the responsibilities in that scheme. So while I think Pro Football Focus is like a nice resource, um, that stat, the Quinn and Williams stat, ranking him worse than a guy, again, who played 12 snaps and gave up a touchdown, just makes me wary. And I think this is something I've touched on before in this show, that... I think analytics are a great way to support your argument and to find interesting angles on on players and games to help you interpret what's happening and to help predict what could happen in the future based on present, past data, uh, uh, anticipated uh, data. But it's not the end-all, be-all. And so if you are like completely relying on, especially if you rely on maybe just one place for grades and statistics, you may just want to uh, diversify and try to get a better feel for how things are interpreted because or else, for instance, if you only uh, relied on something like pro football focus, you could be left with a um, pretty much incorrect interpretation of performance. Uh, so that's all I've got for the NFL for now. Uh, we're going to go to break here just in a minute, and we're going to talk about a little bit of the NBA. The NBA started... Tuesday night, again, uh, the Boston Celtics beat the Philadelphia 76ers at home, and the Warriors beat the Lakers in the uh, Chase Center with their ring ceremony. Um, and then we had most of the most of the league also uh, start last night. Tonight we have Bucks, Sixers, and Clippers, Lakers. But I just wanted to get into some NBA stuff, some interesting observations I have from data last year, and just how the league has changed in a way. So we will get to that right after the break. Back from the break, talking about the NBA as I prefaced before the break, uh, just as a little introduction into why I want to get into this. I, I got a book um, at a uh, like a secondhand shop a couple weeks ago, The Pocket Book of Pro Basketball, 1980, 1981. I find it very, it's basically a preview of the season based off of last season, breaking down by every team, their key players, and what they expect going forward. I think it's really cool because it's a snapshot in time 
of the league and how they viewed their own players back then and um also things were a lot different in terms of rule changes um as i'll get into in a minute i mean for instance they have a whole section of their preview talking about how um kareem abdul jabbar could be the greatest player ever um and how larry bird in this case i believe this would be going into his second or third year i believe second year uh in the league on how he'll perform better in the 1981 season uh just very cool for a snapshot in time anyways so uh first page of this book says if you want excitement in a basketball game all you have to do is watch the last two minutes this is something that i've heard uh you know in, in the last couple years on maybe why some people like uh to to watch college basketball instead of professional basketball because it can be there could be no reason to watch it until you get to the end of the game because that's what really can decide a game and i just wanted to uh challenge that because there was also a i've heard before that the end of games can be very boring just because it's a lot of iso isolation plays and that can in turn be very boring and not very exciting for the viewer to watch so what i what i found this is from 538 uh known for their statistics uh whatever you think of them as a website they have uh numbers that they've done a lot of research and they have a lot of backing behind but anyways this is from right before last year's all-star break so it's taking numbers from the first half of last season so um uh just uh take that in mind it's looking at stats in clutch time so this is a stat that the nba actually likes to use and what it does is it looks at um game time where there's five or few minutes left in the game and the scoring margin is within five points so um just for like some interpretation the celtics their clutch time numbers were actually really bad when you looked at them at the end of last season because when they started to turn things around in january and february they just started killing teams and they didn't have clutch time numbers because they were leading by so many points with five or fewer minutes left in the game so uh, they didn't have a chance to improve those clutch time numbers anyways so for the crowd that thinks that the last two minutes are just so boring it's just people um you know chucking up shots taking it down to the end of the shot clock that is true for some teams and i'll get into that but there are many teams that step their game up and make it more exciting in the last five minutes in close games so this is taking pick and rolls per 100 possessions and how much that changes in clutch time versus um just overall so the number one team that increased their pick and rolls so i mean pick and rolls is a great way to interpret uh how fun a game is because pick and rolls there's a lot of action uh you know trying to play off the off the pick if they're going to roll if they're going to fade um a lot of players moving around so the charlotte hornets they increased their pick their picks per 100 possessions by 25.43 percent in clutch time lamello ball running the pick and roll is very exciting and something that if you watch lamello the way he interprets that and then either drives um does a floater step backs kicks it to maybe terry rozier in the corner kelly uber jr in the corner maybe pj washington or mason plumley on the roll very exciting another team that increased their pick and roll usage in clutch time the memphis grizzlies nine by 19.1 percent also very exciting if you think of john morant running the pick and roll maybe with jaron jackson jr 
could even run a uh, a smaller role with Dylan Brooks kicking to Desmond Bain in the corner. Um, very exciting. Stephen Adams as well could also be on the role. I think that is the best version of John Moran and of Lamelo Ball, and they make their game more exciting by not just taking it isolated in the last minute in clutch time of close games. Some other teams that increase. The Warriors increased by 14.41% in clutch time. So Steph running pick and rolls with Draymond. I mean, the chemistry they have and how they work off each other, they just are so in sync that watching them run the pick and roll in clutch time, I think is very um, exciting to watch. Uh, even, you know, how great Steph Curry is, him being an ISO, I think anyone would watch. anyone would want to watch that as well. But they're another team that makes things more exciting. The Atlanta Hawks sort of mirroring that with Trey Young in the pick and roll, maybe with John Collins, Clint Capella, 15.67% increase. Hawks, another great example of that because whatever Trey Young, if he gets a good screen, he could maybe step back, take a deep three. He could drive, and you can, he has two lob threats from John Collins and Clint Capella. And then um, with this being last year, he could take it, kick it to Bogdan Bogdanovich in the corner, Kevin Herter in the corner. DeAndre Hunter uh, also in the corner. Lots of shooters available for him. So very exciting to watch. And then um, you can just see some guards that run more pick and roll in that clutch time as well. Trey Young increased his uh, pick and roll per 100 possession in clutch time, which makes sense as I just shadowed with the Hawks increasing. Darius Garland increased. LaMelo Ball increased. Shaw Moran increased. Fred Van Fleet increased. Steph Curry increased, LeBron James increased. More pick and rolls, I think, is more exciting, and so it makes it, watching the last couple of minutes of the game, even more exciting. Now, that's not the case for every team. There were teams that increased in their isolation, isolation usage in clutch time, and this is something I think goes more towards the uh, end that teams are more boring towards the end of games and it just dribbling 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 the ball and it just frankly very boring so you see some teams that increase their isolation usage at the end of games the minnesota timberwolves increased their isos per 100 possession by 62.59 percent a lot of that could just be d'angelo russell dribbling the crap out of the ball maybe carl anthony towns just not very exciting Dallas Mavericks, 60.59% increase. That one makes a lot of sense. Luka Doncic, you want the ball in his hands. He needs the ball in his hands, and he can make magic out of nothing, uh, whether it's a step back, sidestep, floater, uh, drawing contact. Um, it works for the Mavericks most of the time. It did not work at the end of last night's game. If you, if you got the end of that, Suns were able to come back at home. Mavericks had a big league, big lead Damian Lee had a two-pointer that he made with about eight seconds left. Mavericks brought the ball down the floor. Luka, left side of the court, step back three, uh, just short, I believe. Um, so Luka was not able to capitalize in isolation there. Maybe pick and roll would have helped. Um, but, you know, some other teams, uh, Sacramento Kings increased. Uh, that could be a lot of De'Aaron Fox. Portland Trailblazers increasing. That could be a lot of Damian Lillard. So, I mean, I think it really depends on the usage case. I think watching Luka Doncic or Damian Lillard in isolation, due to how great they are in isolation, their ability to make tough contested threes. I mean, how many times have we seen over the years Damian Lillard making a, a clutch three 
over multiple defenders deep uh, again in clutch time in, in a close game it's incredibly exciting to watch and a lot of the times this is what they have to do because if they run a pick and roll they might just double off the double off the screen and and they might get trapped so this might be the only way he can get a clean look and and again you want you want dame to be able to take those shots you want the ball in his hand because he he's the best at executing that um and again so some individual players a, a lot of it mirrors that um, mirrors the team so luca increased the most per uh or rather at the highest ISOs per 100 possession in the clutch time, followed by Joel Embiid. Makes a lot of sense, just what he can, he can just dominate anyone he's on. Julius Randle, very interesting. Jeremy Grant, I think that might be a case of just weren't a lot of dominant options last year for the Pistons. Cade Cunningham really got things going the second half of the year. Sadiq Bey, uh, I, I don't know. Reggie Jackson for the Clippers, they had a lot of injuries, so Reggie sort of had to uh, do things himself. Anthony Edwards. I know I talked about uh, D'Angelo Russell, but Edwards also being able to take things off the dribble. De'Aaron Fox also on here. Um, so again, yeah, list goes on. I think the league is in a good place in terms of that. I think games are close, and there's just so much talent that things are ex exciting in the last two minutes or five minutes or whatever you want to say, because even if there is an increase in isolation with certain players, I want to see what Dame can do when everyone knows he's going to take this shot, what Luka can do when everyone knows he's going to take this shot. And if not, you have other great players, such as Shaw Moran, such as Lamella Ball, who can execute pick and rolls and make the right reads and just see what they can do for their Grizzlies and Hornets, respectively. And I think that's very exciting. One other thing that this book has to say is to talk about the success of the three-pointer. Uh, at this point, the three-pointer had only been around for one or two years. It was at, uh, in 1979, 80 season. That's when they experimented with the three-pointer. Um, and actually, the three-pointer had some history to that. It was not something that the NBA just sort of came up with one day out, out of the whim and decided to implement and just happened to click eventually. No, but in 1960, the American Basketball League, who who um, uh, Abe Saperstein, he had put together the Harlem Globetrotters. He proposed the three-pointer for the American Basketball League. And then um, even though that league eventually um, dissipated, did not sustain, they tried that in the ABA as well. The ABA adopted the three-pointer in the late 1960s and again the aba also faded out but that was when four teams of the aba merged into the nba and eventually the nba adopted it themselves and even though today i think many think that the three-pointer is one of the most exciting parts of basketball there's just so many marksmen who can create who can make improbable shots you just watching steph curry Damian Lillard, some of the most prolific three-pointers of this generation, is exciting, and it's not a detriment. I mean, some people said, uh, in this book it quotes some people, uh, a young fan from California put the three-pointer in still another perspective with this thoughtful comment. I don't like it. It's not for the pros. They should be able to make that kind of shot anyway. 
there's no reason to be giving them an extra point just because there's a line on the court. Seems a little short-sighted in my opinion. I don't know. And then there is another one that I can't find anymore, but it was basically saying that they thought that the novelty of the three-pointer was if you were down by a lot at the end of the game that you would just chuck a bunch of threes in order to hope that some get in and you know you having that extra point helps you again i think it undersells that it doesn't take the into the strategy that threes are more than twos and that if you have a player who can shoot 40 percent on three pointers that is more valuable than a player who can shoot 45 percent on twos it doesn't take into the the strategy on the court the spacing of your players the threat and pressure that it puts on imposing defense by having players that having five players on the floor for example who can all shoot the three and it, it also goes on to say that uh, for instance you know you don't see Kareem Abdul-Jabbar trying to pull up 25 foot sky hooks because he he's incredibly good at what he does he doesn't need to add that to his game I mean I'm I'll challenge that as well Giannis Antetokounmpo is not the best three-point shooter and frankly I think he takes more three-pointers then I think he has to where he needs to. It's just something he's trying to develop and trying to add to his game. But he's still like a 30-something percent three-point shooter, and you have to respect him just a little. Now, because of how good Giannis is at literally everything else, I think you're willing to secede the threes to him, but it's something you have to um, respect. Same thing with Joel Embiid. He has three-point range. Carlton Towns is probably the best three-point shooting big man ever the percentages back it up i mean dirk Nowitzki, obviously in that conversation as well but it's another element of their games that you have to respect and i think if kareem played today there's a very likely chance that he would be shooting three-pointers and probably hakeem uh Olajuwon as well it's just something that adds value to you and puts another um threat of pressure on defenses in terms of how the three-pointer has grown throughout the years, though, I just found some very interesting things. So we all know that Steph Curry broke the all-time three-point record last year. He broke Ray Allen's then record. James Harden is in third place at the moment. But it's interesting seeing the list because there's some names pretty high in the list. You're like, really? They're for all-time three-pointers, how they're, how they're not the guys higher? Damian Lillard and LeBron James are both tied for ninth. You wouldn't call LeBron James a three-point shooter a marksman I mean LeBron is higher than J.R. Smith and J.J. Redick and Clay Thompson who I mean most of their value was driven from the three-pointer um it's just the the time and era that LeBron has played in and the longevity he's had they're able to accumulate that much and Paul George is 19th Clay Thompson 18th and then if you go farther you find some active players who I don't think I would call them like three-point specialists. But again, due to the error there and, and, and the skill set necessary, they are that high on the all-time three-point list. Kyrie Irving is 53rd. CJ McCollum is 54th. Bradley Beal is 48th. I wouldn't call them like, again, three-point specialists. They're just all-around great scores. But again, due to the error they're in and what is needed, they are that high on the list. Evan Fournier, 62nd. DJ Augustine is 64th, Terrence Ross 76th, Robert Covington 85th. Like that is, some of those things blow my mind. And 
you know, you're you're gonna look at the all-time three-point leader list in a couple years, and it's gonna be chock full of of current names. I mean, that's why you look at some players coming up, and you're like, could they ever break the all-time three-point record? Just because there's so many more taken per game. For some context, here are the three-point three-pointers made per game leaders for their career. Now, this is with a minimum of 400 games played, so some players won't qualify, but Steph Curry averages 3.8 three-pointers made per game for his career. Second place is Buddy Heald, Damian Lillard, and Klay Thompson. Makes sense. At three, Steph makes nearly a full three-pointer more than any other player for his whole career. And look at the rest of the players on this list. Ray Allen is at 2.3 three-pointers made per game for his career. And here are all the names between Curry and Ray Allen. Buddy Heald, Damian Laird, and Clay Thompson, as I aforementioned. James Harden, who's third on the all-time um, uh, three-pointer made for the career list. Then James Harden, or I should say Harden. <laughs> then Paul George, D'Angelo Russell, Eric Gordon, and CJ McCollum. It, we're, we're gonna see the, these records are gonna be kind of crazy and they're going to constantly be broken and changed and jockey jockeying just due to how present the three-pointer is in today's NBA keep going after Ray Allen Kemba Walker Kyrie Irving Bradley Beal Robert Covington then Peja Stojakovic one of the most prolific three-point shooters of the 2000s Zach Levine Tim Hardaway Jr. Joe Harris JJ Redick Bojan Bogdanovic Devin Booker it is just incredibly wild that that's the amount of three-pointers being made and attempted now because that's how much the game has developed. And I don't think it's a bad thing, as the book, granted it's from 1980, alluded to that it could be an issue. The amount of skill and talent that there is, I think, negates any sort of negative, um, sort of ne negative effect. And the pressure and the amount of strategy and how defenders have had to change there's much better defense being played than ever before. And the amount of length and how smart you have to be not to jump and to play proper defense on a shooter and to keep track of them as they move around. I mean, just look at someone like Herbert Jones. He looks like he was built in a lab to play defense with his long arms and frame and uh, great awareness. One more stat I found about that. Reggie Miller, who was really the three-pointer, the three-point king of all time until Ray Allen sort of took that mantle for him. He averaged 1.8 made three-pointers per game for his career. And again, he was, he was a very balanced scorer. Scoring was his strong suit, three-pointers at. Great in clutch time, the Knicks fans would know. He even got his team to the finals. He never won a championship, though. One of the, the one things I bet he wished he had in his career but he averages less three-pointers made per game in his career than Terry Rozier or Evan Fournier or Joe Harris or Devin Booker. It's just the way the league's going. I think it's a good thing. But it, again, it's just the way it is. And sorry, a book from 1980 and Howard Liss and John Devaney, the writers and editors. I think you're wrong about the three-pointer. Again, I don't think anyone could predict that it could get to the the status it is today as really the the dominant force and something you have to keep track of in any NBA game but uh, I just think it's incredible I just wanted to 
I just found all this very interesting and wanted to share what I found. So uh, we're just going to head to break real quick and we'll get into my Thursday night picks and predictions for tonight. Again, as I foreshadowed earlier, Saints-Cardinals. We'll get into that and then we'll wrap everything up. Back from the break, Thursday night football tonight, week six or seven. You'd think I would know this by now. Anyways, uh, Car- uh, Saints-Cardinals uh, in Arizona. That is tonight's game on Prime Video. A lot of this game was going to be dictated by injuries. Both teams are very banged up for the Cardinals. They lost their one of the, the biggest stories of their season after they acquired Marquise Hollywood Brown in the offseason. He's been great for them, especially in the absence of DeAndre Hopkins. Looks like Hollywood will be out for a month with a foot injury, but they get Hopkins back from his, again, I believe it was a six-game suspension. Um, So they get him back, uh, one of the best receivers in the NFL. Um, Granted, it does suck that they lose lose Hollywood, but uh, getting Hopkins back is more than a fair consolation prize. Uh, James Conner, their starting running back, is questionable for the game. They also have injuries across the offensive line, losing starting center, Rodney Hudson, knee injury. And then the, the Saints, they've been banged up for a couple weeks now, and that continues into this week's matchup. A short week on Thursday, I think that could play into it too. Maybe if they had a couple more days playing on Sunday, that they'd have more guys available. But this is the way it is. Starting receiver Travis Landry's out. Starting cornerback Marshawn Lattimore is out. Offensive guard Andres Pete is out. Michael Thomas misses another week. Slant King, he is out. Um, And then in terms of the quarterback situation, Andy Dalton has been starting the last couple games in Jameis Winston's place, but both are listed as questionable, and head coach Dennis Allen said it will be a game-time decision tonight, so it's really tough to get a read on on what will happen. Winston is a much better deep ball threat to the receivers. Um, And then... Andy Dalton is more likely to check the ball down. So uh, that being said, it can be tough to figure out who you think is going to win. Maybe if, if you're more into the, the betting crowd, what you think will happen. Um, it's tough to tell. Um, just looking at what the spread is at the moment, this according to FanDuel, uh, the Cardinals, uh, I, I don't know what the lines opened at. This is just where they are at, at the moment. The Cardinals are minus two and a half at home. So if they do have a three-point home favorite, it's pretty much a pick em. I would probably take the points on the Saints. Um, if, if you get plus three, I think that's a decent way to go. Um, just because, I mean, how many times do I have to say this? Thursday night games are just so unpredictable and it's tough to know what's going to happen so the saints i mean we've seen just how uh i don't know why i said the saints the cardinals we've seen just how unpredictable they've been cliff kingsbury i don't think is necessarily a good nfl coach but he continues to have job security you know kyler murray keeps having shifting personnel around him gets his favorite target back at hopkins but loses hollywood brown so again, it's just really hard to tell what happens on these Thursday night games and with all the injuries, tough to get a read on where these teams are at. If you look at how the teams have fared against the spread to see if you know maybe that will help you, it doesn't look like that'll help this week. 
Arizona is three and three against the spread this year, and the Saints are two and four. So not a lot to read into there. So at that rate, I think I would just take the Saints at plus three. It just makes more sense to me. Just take the points. Um, I mean, if if you think Arizona can take care of business too, that's not the worst thing. They only have to win by three if you take that minus two and a half. Um, they are at home, um, and even in uh, Hollywood Brown's absence, I think one of the X factors for them tonight will be Rondale Moore, who will be working opposite of Hopkins. Uh, he was someone who was pegged as someone to watch and monitor as a breakout this year in the preseason um, because a lot of his usage last year was on screens and gadget plays and wasn't really utilizing him um, in a major way. But as we've seen in the past couple weeks, Rondell Moore is getting more involved in this offense and is someone I think one of these weeks could just break out in a monster way, similar to how they used Christian Kirk last year who would have these monster games out of nowhere. If you look at Rondell Moore's last three weeks, his targets have gone up against Carolina on October 2nd. He had five targets October 9th against the Eagles, eight targets last week against the Seahawks, 10 targets. That target share is continuing to increase. Obviously, Hopkins will still get his fair share. We'll see what kind of shape he's in, but with Marquise Brown out, there will still be plenty of targets to go around. He has such a target, high target share of that offense that I think we are going to be looking at a big game for Rondale and for Hopkins. But again, I mean, if I'm going to pick, I guess I'm just too indecisive about this. I will take the Saints points, um, not with the most confidence, because again, we will not know until game time or shortly before who will be the starting quarterback for this Saints offense. So, yep, I will take the points on the Saints, um, and that's just how it is. So, we have a little more time left in the show. Um, we'll just look at some over-unders for the NBA season just as a way to get things started. I know, as I said earlier, season started on Tuesday. Wednesday was the uh, when most of the league started. Tuesday was just sort of the tip-off. Wednesday, a lot of the league played last night. Tonight, you have two games, and then Friday, we'll get more to uh, a lot of action. So some of the over-underlines, again, this is just uh, as of this afternoon on FanDuel. Some of the ones I like, let's just go through it real quickly here. The Brooklyn Nets were over-under at 51.5 wins. I mean... If you watched last night's game, you saw that the Pelicans really handled the Nets. I believe that game was in Brooklyn, too. Um, I think that there's a twofold thing to look in that. I think the Nets, they're just so volatile and it's tough to peg them. I think under 51 and a half makes a lot of sense because they could still win 50 games, win even 51 games, but it's tough to put them above. That's a little high for me. And I think the Pelicans are really good, as we'll get into here in a minute. The Dallas Mavericks, they were over under 48 and a half wins. I think the Mavericks will they'll definitely make the play-in. I don't necessarily think they're a top six team in the West. And with losing Jalen Brunson, I think that really hurts them. It's tough to figure out their whole front court situation, bring Christian Wood off the bench as a sixth man, starting Maxi Kleba and JaVale McGee, also having Dwight Powell. Um, and then losing that other dominant guard in Brunson is really tough because he was great for them 
down the stretch in the playoffs. Spencer Dinwiddie will take a bigger role. They get Tim Hardaway Jr. back from injury, but you know Brunson was rising and just such a great player for them at the end of games. I will take the under on the 48 and a half. I think they can still win 45 games, be a playing team, be a play, and be a team that no one wants to run into. But again, just slightly under. The Memphis Grizzlies over under 48 and a half as well. This number seems low to me. John Morant is could even have a better year than he did last year. He's still getting better as a player, and he was an All NBA guy. They are going to miss Sharon Jackson Jr. for a little bit. He's going to return anywhere from November to January. But they've just got so much depth, and they're similar to the Miami Heat, where they pull these guys out of nowhere and they just suddenly start playing super well in big roles for them. You saw that with Santi last night. Desmond Bain's going to get better. They have Dylan Brooks at the start of the year. He had missed some time to begin last year. Another year of Steven Adams in this offense. Another year of Taylor Jenkins as their coach. The Grizzlies are just a machine. They're one of the teams that thrives in the regular season. They take it very seriously and they just have so much chemistry and they play with so much heart and they always look like they're having a good time. 48 and a half, I'll take the over. They, they can easily be a 50-win team. I mean, they were the number two, I believe, the number two seed in the West last year. They haven't really proven to me that they can't get back to that. New Orleans Pelicans over under 45 and a half go over. Worst case scenario, they could win like 46 games. That still hits the over, but I think they could be a high 40s, 50s win team. Zion Williamson looks great. He looks back to what he was. Someone you can create so explosively on the ball. Um, and he's just incredibly hard to contain. Brandon Ingram is an elite level shot maker. And we saw how he became a great distributor and playmaker in the playoffs last year. Full offseason with the team for CJ McCollum. Um, and again, they're similar to the Grizzlies. They just have so much depth. Trey Murphy, Willie Hernan Gomez, uh, Jonas Valanciunas, Jose Alvarado, Devontae Graham, as I mentioned earlier, Herbert Jones. The list goes on. They are deep. They are talented as any team in the West. Orlando Magic, over, under, 27 and a half wins. It's tough. I, I give them the over. Paolo Bencaro looked great last night. Markel Fultz is out at the moment, so is Jonathan Isaac, but they also have Wendell Carter Jr., Cole Anthony Gray, sixth man off the bench. Um, Franz Wagner, one of the great rookie stories from last year. He looked great in Eurobasket with Team Germany, and I think he will continue to get better into his NBA career. Jalen Suggs had a monster third quarter last night after he sort of had a lost rookie year. They have a lot of guys who I think will do better um, I don't think they are in that basement of teams in the NBA going for Victor Wembanyama and Scoot Henderson. So I think 27 and a half over, they could win 28, 29 games. My last one here, it is 259. I'll just wrap this one up. The Sacramento Kings, go Kings, 33 and a half. A little high, I suppose. But I think another year around De'Aaron Fox and DeMontis Bonus, they couldn't take care of business. They just blew it down the stretch against the Trailblazers very Kingsian of them but I think De'Aaron Fox he has sort of plateaued in recent years I think he has a chip on his soldier, shoulder soldier uh, he's a determined player I believe in him Sabonis I think is great Harrison Barnes as steady as it gets and they had some great offseason additions they brought in 
Kevin Herter from the Hawks, Malik Monk. So they're going to be guys who can space the floor well and provide elite-level shooting at the end of games. And Keegan Murray, he is a four that looked as good as any rookie in the summer league and then someone who can step in and play immediately for them. I just think they got a lot of guys. The bottom of the West is weak with some teams, and I think they have a chance to get right above that, and I think they are a team that could make some noise in the play-in. So that's all I got. Just got to 3 o'clock. Thanks to rumble through the rest of those. Um, and so I will catch you all next Thursday.